It's a Friday night in Wellington. The ambulance I'm in has its lights and siren going, the driver grappling with the early evening traffic, trying to get us to the person in need as fast as possible. But we're having to cross the city and then speed north, and time is ticking away. The call has come from a house down a dark, rutted lane, and for a minute it's not obvious where we should be going. Once inside, the ambulance officers start the job of assessing what's happened and what they need to do. Do you remember when the last time you had one of these blackouts? How long ago was that? The arrival of an ambulance can mean the difference between life and death for someone in trouble. But to tip the odds, the crew has to arrive promptly, have the right qualifications and the right equipment. It also helps if they're not working alone. Push analyze. On this call, paramedic Mike Sunderland, who works for Wellington Free Ambulance, is with volunteer John Randall. Earlier in the week, he was on his own. Wednesday, I was supposed to have uh, an intern. We have intern staff who are learning the ropes, so basically they're going through a course and, and learning about the ambulance service and gaining the qualifications. Um, unfortunately, he was on a study day, so I was single crewed on Wednesday. It's not an isolated experience, and it's happening around the country. In Rotorua, Daryl Stritch, a paramedic with St John, says working alone is the single biggest problem he faces. That's my whole life. So you single crew all the time? All the time. In Hamilton, officers work alone at night and at weekends. In the Lower North Island, this paramedic says one in three jobs are single crewed. Judging on statistics we've been taking over the last two or three months, I would say at least a third of our jobs are single crewed. The figures in some regions are even worse, according to advanced paramedic John Stretton, who's the president of the Wanganui-based union, the New Zealand Ambulance Association. In our region here, 70% of ambulance responses are single crewed. We represent staff in, in, um, in Wanganui and Horofanua, principally. The outstations around the volcanic plateau, that's uh, the Taihapis, the Oakunis, but certainly we're well aware that there is a, a, a shortage of staff in places like the Waikato and in Taranaki. We think single crewing is becoming increasingly a, a problem right around the countryside. He says lives are being put at risk. Patients' lives are being jeopardised, patient safety is being jeopardised through single crewing. Paramedic Mike Sunderland says it's always important to have a second pair of hands to help. It doesn't matter what it's for, any job you go to, you've got to carry stuff in and out of the job. Um, there's lifting patients, any sick patients. I mean, one person can't do everything, and there's, there's always plenty to do if you've got a sick patient with you. We're being single crewed, um, and, and it's dangerous for us as well as the patient. There's also the relatively mundane but vital issue of knowing where to go. Probably about six months ago I bought myself a NAVMAN navigation system, mainly for the single crewing issue. Um, on days when I'm single crewed, excuse me, that's another call. Um, days where I'm single crewed, you know, you can't read a map and drive, so finding your way can be quite difficult. So the navman was purely based on the fact that if I'm on my own, I can just plug in the address and it'll direct me. And you paid for that for yourself? Yes, yes. This case in the Wellington region involved a young woman who'd had a convulsion. A heavy patient, it looked quite an effort to carry her out to the ambulance. What would have happened if there'd only been one ambulance officer at the scene? 
If she can't walk, we would have had to have called for assistance, basically, um, to help with caring, and that, that might be fire service or it might be another ambulance. Or The other option we've got there is there's quite a few young fellows there, so we can take advantage of that as well. I don't think her condition was uh, serious enough to warrant needing someone in the back. You know, the, the family member was, was OK in the back there, but it's always nice to have a medically qualified person in the back. Just, you, you just never know what's going to happen. John Britton, the chief executive of Wellington Free Ambulance, says having two qualified paramedics attend a person has enormous advantages. It enables the two people to work as a team. Yeah, they can, if you like, uh, look out for each other when they go into an unstable or, or difficult situation. They can cross-check with each other when they're actually treating the patient and do a better job as a result of that. So, as they say, two heads are definitely better than one. And, of course, then, and this is probably the, the other critical factor, it means that uh, simply one of the paramedics can drive the ambulance while the other one can monitor or treat the patient on the way to hospital. So the two key components are the safety of the paramedics because they can be going into very difficult situations and it provides much better care for the patient. John Britton says Wellington Free manages to have around 90% of call-outs double-crewed, although he accepts that the definition of double-crewing depends on who you talk to. If you're talking to someone representing the union, they will argue that it should be two paid professional paramedics. From Wellington Free Ambulance Services' perspective, what we're after is the care for the patient, so we don't mind if the second person's a volunteer or, or a paid professional. For most of the rest of the country, ambulances are provided by St John, which says that on a national basis, the amount of double-crewed call-outs is around 82%. But it varies from region to region, and many on the front line are sceptical about the accuracy of that figure. In Auckland City and Christchurch, two officers turning up to an emergency response are a common sight. Not so in other areas. Chief Executive James Wood. Our highest incidents of single crewing are in the central region, so lower half of the North Island. Uh, the Manawatu is um, a particularly high level of single crewing. And what level is that? 50% thereabouts, sometimes more, depending on rosters, availability of people, and all of the circumstances uh, around managing this huge uh, raft of variables in, in an ambulance service. Nationally, it adds up to around 50,000 or a sixth of all emergency call-outs for which the initial first response is from a single officer. John Stretton from the Union, the New Zealand Ambulance Association, says the care people receive shouldn't depend on where they live. It's just a third world service in places and it just needs to be, it needs to be absolutely examined and there is no reason why someone in our community shouldn't have exactly the same chances of surviving a cardiac arrest is somebody who lives in a, a town where there are, are double crewed ambulances. John Stretton lives beside the busy state highway into Wanganui. He launched the association early last year and says it now has around 70 members, both paid officers and volunteers. Although there are a number of other unions that represent ambulance officers under the umbrella of the Federation of Ambulance Officer Unions, John Stretton says it was time to speak out about the risks of single crewing. We felt that things had really reached a point where we needed to try and take a bit more proactive stance. The association has released details of three fatal cardiac arrests to which ambulances were sent with only one crew member and which the union claims compromised the patient's treatment. The only single crewed vehicle that should be sent to a cardiac arrest is an undertaker. St John says in the first case the patient had died before the ambulance was called. 
In the second, the patient was suffering heart pains, and the cardiac arrest occurred at hospital. And in the third case, St John says two single crewed ambulances and one double crewed responded, in addition to the fire service, but resuscitation attempts were unsuccessful. The clinical advisory group of St John reviewed the cases and concluded that the ultimate outcome for the patients would not have been different if the initial responding ambulance had been fully crewed. But that doesn't satisfy John Stretton. We certainly think that there is an enormous clinical risk for anybody in a cardiac arrest situation who's simply got a single crewed ambulance responded to them. We don't know what the survival figures are for those patients. In, in the first instance, um, apparently the patient was actually dead before the ambulance arrived. That does happen, absolutely. Yes, that does happen. It was one of the cardiac arrests um, that was quoted. But so we that can't be because a single crew arrived? That's, that's, that's right, but I think the mere fact that a single crewed ambulance was sent to a cardiac arrest speaks volumes in itself. Patently, there was nothing that the crew was able to do, but it was a cardiac arrest until proven otherwise, and the only response which was able to be provided was a single crewed ambulance, and, and that's, that's terrible. In fact, the chief executive of St John, James Wood, supports the view that ambulance officers should not have to deal with cases of cardiac arrest on their own. If there are single crewed ambulances in the area, we would send one and the nearest other one, so you might get two single crewed ambulances or more. Cardiac arrest, very high priority, and we respond whatever resources we can and, and believe might be necessary at the time. This notion of backup, the sending of another ambulance crew to support the first responder, is how a stretched ambulance service tries to plug the gaps and means a constant shuffling round of resources. I'll have to start rolling towards the corner of forming a at the top. At an early stage of the evening with Wellington Free, we're told to start driving or rolling towards Porirua to cover a gap in that area. I've just seen Helen round to a doctor's referral on the buttons. Yes. Now, um, the doctor's wanting an AP to travel with the patient as well. Yeah. Um, Levin winds up in Palmerston, of course, dropping off. Yes. And she was wanting me to send Malcolm around to do driving for here. But he's due to finish soon as well. With St John in Palmerston North, oh, watch manager Chrissy Rose is busy finding out whether an officer on her own needs backup. All your APs are in Palmy. Yeah, that's right. Shall, shall we do you want us to start heading one down, and then if you don't need it, you can cancel them? Yes, yes, I can do so. I'll talk to Stuart anyway. I think he was going to try and get hold of Malcolm to come and um, give driving for now, and then and just keep Palmerston coming, and I can always cancel if we improve. Trying to follow who and what's being dispatched is like grappling with a giant jigsaw, but it has more serious implications for patients in urgent need. A single crew would often arrive first, and then call for backup, which may be another single vehicle as well, which often happens in our area, which means at the end of the day, or the end of the job, the one ambulance is locked up on the side of the road and a double crew then goes to hospital. This paramedic, who doesn't want to be named, works in the lower North Island. He says backup often takes 15 to 20 minutes and sometimes even an hour to arrive. The transport time is slowed down because we're on the scene much, much longer. And even once we do leave the property, we have to stop en route to hospital. Most of our work is now from hospital, so transport's delayed by stopping and checking the patient. When you're transporting, and if it's a, an hour away, what happens to the people of this area when you're out of town? Well, obviously, there's no ambulance here. And, yeah, if the ambulance is busy, well, that's just, um, it's probably just a problem that we can't really get around. It doesn't really justify having two vehicles here all the time. 
But if your neighbouring area is also busy and their single crewed ambulance is gone, that means the backup isn't close at hand either. So it could be that if you have a cardiac arrest, you might have to wait for 45 minutes for another vehicle to get here. And so if it's a cardiac arrest or if it's something like choking, it may be just pure luck whether you survive or not. Sometimes, yes, that'd be correct. The situation could be a lot worse were it not for thousands of volunteers who staff ambulances. Their estimated dollar value, more than $60 million a year. My best friend's two children were killed in a car accident. Jo Tolliff has been a St John volunteer in Fielding for 15 years. She was the attending ambulance officer. When I went to the funeral, um, all I saw was a sea of blue jerseys with the red epaulettes, which is the uniform we used to have, and the support was just amazing what they gave her. And at that time, I didn't have a clue what to do, so I thought, well, if I came across a car accident, I wouldn't know what to do. So I decided to become a volunteer. She is one of 2,200 volunteers who mostly work one shift a week on the ambulances for St John. That's twice as many volunteers as paid staff. The ratio is similar at Wellington Free. Rob Jenkins, an operations manager, says volunteers are essential in the effort to put as many double-crewed ambulances on the road as possible. Once we run short of volunteers, then we're looking at, at trying to push our crews together so that we've got two people in a vehicle and we're maintaining that good clinical quality care and also maintaining staff safety. So that if that means we have to drop the number of vehicles that we have to respond to emergency incidents, then that, that's the way it is. Right, we're just going to check your blood pressure before we go away as well. Yep. Um, I work every Friday night. So it's a shift that starts at 6 o'clock at night and finishes at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. John Randall has been a volunteer at Wellington Free for nearly 20 years, while also doing a full-time job. It means I can actually work a full shift with the service and then spend Saturday morning and early afternoon sleeping. Not only do volunteers flesh out crew numbers, in some areas they're the only ambulance officers available. James Wood from St John. Typically they are in rural locations where there's low demand, uh, so if there's high demand we put full-time resource in. One example, Owacker in the Catlins, they do about 400 ambulance responses a year, totally volunteer. Team two, can I have some dressings please? In a damp, dark field in Ashurst near Palmerston North, an accident scene is lit only by the headlights of a car and the still flashing lights from the emergency vehicles. A man is pinned under the huge trunk of a fallen tree and fire and ambulance crew try to sort out what's needed to help him. How do you know he's not hurt anywhere else? He might be hurt elsewhere. You guys all standing there just looking at him. Lucky for the victim, this was just a training scenario. Only with prompting did the Green volunteers realise that in addition to leg injuries, the man had a significant stomach wound. So just how well qualified are volunteers compared to full-time paid ambulance officers? James Wood. The training continuum that we use for all ambulance officers is the same, volunteer or paid. So beginning at basic and, and moving through to advanced paramedic. And we encourage volunteers to go as far along that training continuum as they can. And we have volunteers at all levels of uh, clinical expertise, but typically because they are less involved in time terms than the activity than our paid people, they do operate at a lower clinical competency level. 
Privately, ambulance staff told me that working with new volunteers can place an enormous extra burden on them as they try to oversee everything they do. This may be one of the reasons that when it comes to the issue of double crewing, many paramedics want that defined as two paid officers. That's backed by the Federation of Ambulance Officer Unions. Its representative is Neil Chapman. That's our preference, and we refer back to the to the standard. And there are prescriptions within the standard that talk about qualification and skill levels in the in the double crewing situation. The standard Neil Chapman refers to is the Ambulance Service Sector Standard, published in 2002 by Standards New Zealand. It says. All ambulance services providing an emergency response capability shall operate with a minimum of two crew. Each crew member must hold an Ambulance New Zealand recognised qualification. The problem with the standard, however, is that it has no weight in law. In fact, there are no mandatory quality provisions, such as crewing levels or response times, governing the ambulance sector. It's a situation which appalls the Green Party's health spokesperson Sue Kedgley. Either there is a standard which you're required to meet, or there isn't one. And the problem is, the standard has no teeth. It's it's not a regulatory standard. It's almost just like a voluntary guideline. So it's absolutely essential that the standard be given regulatory force so that it has legal teeth. In practice, ambulance providers have to work to their Ministry of Health contracts, which state that ambulance services meet certain requirements to their best endeavour. James Wood from St John's says at present it would be inappropriate and irresponsible to contract without that clause. The best endeavour clause is there because they know, we know, that we do not have the resources and capability to respond fully crewed in every instance, and as such, we need that best endeavour clause to ensure that we do comply with our contract. Uh, were we funded fully to? Double crew every ambulance、uh, in the country. That I'm sure would change.、Uh, were government to use the standard as the specification for the contract, that might change as well. A review of the ambulance standard is being undertaken, and at some point is expected to form the basis of mandatory standards for the sector. Anthony Hill from the Ministry of Health told a select committee that it's time for a change. The best endeavours. Scenario in the contract is an historical feature of service in New Zealand around ambulances. We are looking to see that change, and the and the funding we have put in, the work we're doing on double crewing, the way the ambulance standard is developing, <coughs> will see developments there. So I am aware because when I first saw best endeavours,、um, I reacted similarly. Um, from a different perspective, five years ago, but we are working to see that change. At the hearing, MPs expressed concern that the reviewed standard might water down the statement on double crewing. The new document is likely to build in some flexibility to recognise that in some cases, single crewed vehicles, such as high-level rapid response vehicles that can speed quickly through traffic to be first at an emergency, can be the best option. In the meantime, would more money sort out the problem of too many single crewed ambulances? St John is seeking an extra $45 million over the next eight years, which its chief executive James Wood says would allow the double crewing of all emergency callouts. It would take time, obviously, to recruit, train, and deploy people, which is why we're suggesting it is phased in over time. Obviously, there's not a supply of ambulance officers sitting waiting to be deployed. 
But uh, were we to achieve that, uh, yes, we could fully crew ambulances with a high level of use of volunteers. That funding bid looks unlikely to succeed. However, Vote Health funding for the ambulance service has increased over the last three years by 39% to $59 million a year, and an offer to providers of another 10% rise is currently on the table. ACC also funds ambulances to the tune of around $37 million a year. The remainder is sourced through donations, bequests and sponsorship deals. Although at some stage the government might move to a single funder model, there are no plans to change the system of funding, and so the dependence on volunteers and donations is set to continue. The Health Minister, Pete Hodson, says the service is being funded so that at some point in the future it will reach the ambulance standard. Under questioning at Parliament's Health Select Committee, he said that at the moment the service isn't good enough, but that it has never been better. But it may still be terrible, even though it's better than it was before. It's terrible if you measure it against the standard, and that's the standard that we want to aspire to. The minister says the amount of single crewing should be reduced, but believes providing a fast response is the more important priority. We should not attempt to reach a situation where double crewing is always the case. And the reason for that is that response times drop. And the evidence is that double crewing is probably um, gives a health advantage over single crewing in many cases. And it's also the case that getting there in a hurry matters. And so often you'll see um, a single crewed ambulance go out rather than a delay. And the ministry, with its contracting with ambulance providers, places its most emphasis not on uh, how many people get there, but how quickly they get there. And if a second person arrives later, then that's better than both people arriving late. This emergency call from Wellington Hospital across the city to Lower Hutt took around 20 minutes. Add extra minutes from the time the call was answered to the time of actual dispatch. The categorisation of response times has recently changed to a model used in the UK and Australia. Under the previous system, the Ministry's figures reveal patchy success rates, with only three out of six response targets being met. In urban areas, 80% of high-priority calls will arrive within 10 minutes. Failed! In rural areas, 80% of calls will arrive in 16 minutes. Failed! 95% in 30 minutes. Failed. With the revised system gone are the old priorities 1, 2 and 3, and the new categories of A, B and C have lower target times. For instance, for category A urban calls, 50% should arrive in 8 minutes, compared to the old target of 80% in 10 minutes. The Ministry says the new categories allow more flexibility and is waiting for better data to come on stream to evaluate the new response targets. That improved data started to become available on July the 1st, and by all accounts, it is badly needed. So this is our live room. It's the new Ambulance Communication Project, or ACP, that is making the difference. Anita Hansen, the Acting Communication Centre Manager, showed me round the Wellington base. So here we've got the CAD system. Basically what we have is we've got four screens. I can choose to see any region in the whole of New Zealand because we're one of three virtual centres. If Auckland had the unfortunate um, 
event where their comm centre was taken down for whatever reason, we could take over their region and dispatch their vehicles, take their calls. James Wood, the head of St John, says the old systems in nine independent call centres were chaotic. The standards of operation in the nine were hugely variable, the data sets completely different, the measurement criteria different, if it could have been different it was. At a select committee, the Ministry of Health's Deputy Director General Anthony Hill and Manager Rose Wall made much of the July the 1st start-up. We're reliant on that ACP delivering the data. From 1 July it becomes one of the reporting requirements. I'd have to check, I'm not aware of any offhand. We don't know, but the... You don't know? I don't know. Not at this point in time, but again from 1 July that data would be collected. The system will go live on 1 July, at which point we will have better access to the full set of data. But a significant problem was overlooked. Half of the improved data stream depends on the introduction of mobile data terminals into ambulances, and those aren't working, and aren't expected to be working, until the end of the year. When I interviewed Anthony Hill, he appeared not to realise the current status of those units and the implication for the data stream, until given the detail by an offsider. I don't have the, the current update on that progress, but... As I understand it, yes, there are issues with the, the MDTs, as they call them. That apparently occurs um, at the outer margins of some of the coverage of the relevant um, technology, and that's being worked through. But you say you're going to get this improved data stream from July the 1st, yes. whereas in fact you won't get the complete improved data stream because the mobile data terminals are not working, which looks like it's going to take until the end of the year. I think we need to recognise that the MDT problem is not a universal problem. It's a problem that is occurring in some parts so of what, some are working? the operations. As I understand it, some are working. I stand to be I corrected on that. that switched on. They're in a testing mode. OK. Oh, so they haven't even been deployed yet? There's four, they, no, there's 14 vehicles that have the complete installation and they're currently in a testing mode. OK. So you're saying you're going to get an improved data stream from July the 1st when in fact that data stream isn't actually going to be complete until the mobile data terminals are up and running, which will be by the end of the year at the earliest. My expectation is, yes, that we will have a vastly improved set of information from the 1st of July, and that's what I'll be expecting, and at this point that is what I'm told I'm going to get. There have been other teething problems with the call centres, and some paramedics in the field say they're getting poorer information than under the old system. The new project, when fully operational, promises to provide far more accurate information on the number of calls, who's calling, how long it's taking to handle calls, the medical assessment of calls, the response rates and crewing. Until then, quality improvements are expected to be slow. Minister Pete Hodson. I think it probably is um, a several-year undertaking. I don't think we're going to reach the standard by this time next year or by this time the year after. And until that standard is reached, it may be pure luck whether a person survives a cardiac arrest or any other life-threatening emergency, despite an ambulance being called.